Opinions expressed on Mountain Talk do not necessarily reflect those of WMMT, Apple Shop Incorporated, or the station's funders. This is Mountain Talk Monday, and I am your host, Kelly Haywood. For today's conversation, I have on the phone Cheryl Gay Stahlberg, who is a journalist and a bureau chief for the New York Times. She covers news, features, and politics of national interest in the Mid-Atlantic region, and she is based in Washington, D.C. Recently, Stolberg completed a visit and a subsequent article about the economic transition of the East Kentucky coal fields. She called it Beyond Coal, Imagining Appalachia's Future. In it, she mentions the efforts of Apple Shop and other local businesses, projects, and entrepreneurs like Mountain Tech Media, BitSource, and Benham Saves. Cheryl Stolberg, welcome to Mountain Talk Monday. It's Thanks, an honor Kelly. to have you here. Thank you. I am really excited to talk to you today about the article. We get a lot of press come through Appalachia since the 1950s and the war on poverty, and it's a rare opportunity to get to talk to them after they've reported on us. The first question that I would like to ask is, what do you feel the national fascination with Appalachia, and particularly, it seems, eastern Kentucky and West Virginia, is really in everyone's mind. What do you think the national fascination with that is? Well, I think the national fascination with it right now is that, you know, we keep hearing, at least here in Washington, about the so-called war on coal. And there's been this big fight over the last eight or so years since President Obama has been in office over, is he waging a war on coal or not? And we see all these coal jobs lost. But beyond that, I do think that there's kind of a long-running fascination with Appalachia, what I would call central Appalachia, eastern Kentucky and West Virginia. And I think it has to do with the culture. I mean, when I was there, I just couldn't help but be taken by the rich heritage of the place, the food, the music, the way people speak. It's a place unto itself in America. And I think anytime you find a culture or a society like that that is so rich and interesting that outsiders like me can't help but be fascinated by it. It's interesting because we do also feel that real sense of pride that you probably felt us feeling. And I wonder, do you think we're an anomaly in the United States? Do you think that there's a mainstream American culture? Or do you think every place has this kind of distinction? I think every place does have a sense of pride. I travel all over the country for my stories and have for a long time. And wherever I go and whenever I write about a place, I always want to remember that it's somebody's home. So when I write about some place, I think I want to produce a story that people who live there will recognize as familiar to them. But I think that maybe there is kind of a particular pride in Appalachia, and maybe it comes from the hard life that people have had there. I'm not really sure, but a lot of people talk to me about this so-called hillbilly stereotype. And my strong sense was that people are 
sometimes offended by the way outsiders look at, at them in Kentucky. And, and I should make a confession here. I'm married to a Kentuckian. My husband, of more than 25 years, is from western Kentucky. So I know a lot about Kentucky. I've spent a lot of time in Kentucky. But I have never really spent much time in eastern Kentucky until this story. And I, I'm constantly coming home and telling my husband, we've got to go to Whitesburg for the Mountain Festival. Or, you know, we need to do this. Or you need to look at that. And I know more now than he does, I think, about this part of the state. It's interesting because I lived in Louisville myself for seven years. Otherwise, I've been in eastern Kentucky most of my life. And when I was in Louisville, they would refer to us eastern Kentucky as that Kentucky. And I think even all across the state, they feel that big divide or a big difference. It's almost struck me as like two states. You know, Mm -hmm. I came to the New York Times from the Los Angeles Times, and I worked in Southern California, and we used to say that that was like two states also, that like Northern California, San Francisco had a certain feel, and Southern California had a certain feel. San Francisco was almost more cosmopolitan, sort of more like New York in a way. People in San Francisco always viewed people in L.A. as shallow, kind of Hollywood people, and people in L.A. viewed San Francisco people as kind of snooty, stuck up, you know, Northern California or wine country people. And it's almost the same in Kentucky. There's eastern Kentucky and western Kentucky, and it seems like never the twain shall meet. It's hard to even describe our lifestyle and our feelings about ourselves to people from outside of the region. I find that it really takes a long time, and I'm never wholly satisfied with the job that I've done when I try. A couple of things strike me also. It's like the land is very different, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, where my husband or his his mom still lives there in Owensboro, Kentucky. You know, the land there is very flat. The landscape is different. Once you get to eastern Kentucky, it's this incredible, beautiful, mountainous region. But it's also a remote place. It's a hard place to get to. When I come from Washington, I tend to fly from Washington to Charleston, West Virginia, and then drive through Pikeville. And what I did for this story was I came through Pikeville, I went to Benham, and then I went to Whitesburg, and then I kind of circled my way back. But I wanted to come initially around January. Well, there was a big snowstorm, and I really couldn't get there in January. So I wonder if that's also part of the strong culture and the feeling of pride. It's a feeling of living in a place where it's hard to live in because it's both naturally beautiful but naturally remote. Jobs have been scarce sometimes. There have been cycles of boom and bust with the coal industry, and so people have had hard lives. And maybe all of that goes into that kind of particular pride, but also a particular feeling of felt like you're being put upon by the outside world, being looked at in a different way or a stereotype. I think you're exactly right there. And one of the things that I would add to that is, Because of our remoteness, because of our income inequality and the difficulty in traveling, many of us haven't seen much of the world outside of the mountains. I know as an adult myself, I've only seen the ocean one time. And sometimes it can really change the way you see yourself in the context of the bigger picture when all you have as a reference, is what you see on television or read in the news. It's interesting to me also that some of the most interesting entrepreneurial work that's being done in eastern Kentucky 
Kentucky that I wrote about work, what they're doing at Apple Shop with Mountain Tech Media, or there's folks in Hippo, Kentucky, growing hemp. A lot of the really interesting work is being done by people who grew up in the region, who left to go to college or business school, maybe saw a bit of the outside world, and then are kind of trying to bring that back home. Mm -hmm. And to me, that also speaks of kind of a love of the land and a love of place. I met so many young people who said to me, when I grew up here, my teachers told me, you have to get out. You've got to get out to find a job. Like, don't stay here. There's nothing here for you. And then they would talk to me about how they just felt the pull of the land and of their family, and they wanted to come back and give back and pour something into the community. And I feel like that's where a lot of the energy is in eastern Kentucky right now. Yeah, I would agree. And we'll tell young folks all the time that sometimes it takes leaving to realize what is possible here and to bring back some of the hopefulness that you can find outside. When you think about the fatalist idea and the different perspective changing that. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's really that way with life. When you were talking, the Joni Mitchell song just came to mind about you pave paradise, put up a parking lot. And there's this one lyric in it where she says, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And it just made me think, like, maybe people who grow up in your region don't realize the value of it. They don't see the beauty and the promise of it until they leave. And then they realize what they've left behind. We're really fortunate that we have young people willing to come back. And I think that's true even with those who retire and leave or who have left in previous bust periods. It seems like they're always either deeply connected with Appalachia or trying to come home, one or the other. Yeah, and I mean, I think the big trick and the thing that I tried to write about is how can people make it economically feasible for them to come home? How can they earn a living in a place that they love? And I guess that's kind of what my story wrestled with was this idea of, reimagining Appalachia. You know, what can this place be, a place that's been so dependent on the coal industry for so long? Um, how can it diversify and how can it change so that people who do want to stay can stay? Let's talk a minute about how you feel the national media plays to the public perceptions of Appalachia. Because I know we see the picture painted by outsiders in national media of Appalachia put back to us through that same media. What role do you think national media has played in creating the Appalachia we have today? Well, when I think about it, I guess what immediately comes to mind is Lyndon Johnson's announcement of the war on poverty, where he came to your part of the country and he announced this legislation with all good intentions, standing before a backdrop of just immense and utter and crushing poverty. And I think that that moment really fixed America's imagination or fixed Appalachia in America's imagination. It sort of created a vision of your region that has frankly stuck. And that's a vision of poverty and despair and joblessness and I think the national media, frankly, has played into that over the years. But that, that is not to say that the national media has been telling a myth. There is a lot of poverty and joblessness and despair and 
health problems and all those things. And I, so I think when reporters, national reporters, come to tell stories in the region, that's often what they look at. Maybe that's the easiest thing to look at. I know that when I was doing my reporting, a lot of people were very suspicious of me because I was from the New York Times. And the Times Magazine, I think, had written a story that was headlined something like, What's the Matter with Eastern Kentucky? And it detailed a lot of statistics about the hard lives that people have, health statistics that showed people are not as medically stable as they are in other parts of the country, that there are worse health outcomes, et cetera, that poverty is higher. So it's easy to focus on all of those things. I wanted to tell a more hopeful story, but I'm also mindful that the hopeful story that I told was really almost aspirational. These new companies that are springing up are employing only a few people when thousands and thousands are out of work. That is the reality. So I guess I would hope that when national media come, they would tell a story that, or we would tell a story that is truthful to both sides. The statistics are true. They're facts. We have a lot of work to do here before we even can call ourselves rebuilding. I think one thing that I see the national media missing is that piece that you talked about making it more personal, that statistics are numbers and they're very impersonal. But we have to remember that there are people attached to these stories and there's also a history attached to these people that bring a different level of understanding to the struggle that we're experiencing here. Sometimes I think that is missed. So bringing a more balanced approach, like you mentioned, I think would be very helpful to us. And remembering not to coin things with words that just come to you. Like when Diane Sawyer covered Eastern Kentucky not too long ago and used the term Mountain Dew Mouth, That was the first time so many of us had ever heard anybody refer to bad teeth as Mountain Dew Mouth. I've never heard that. Yes. And and now you probably have heard of J.D. Vance Mm -hmm. and Hillbilly Elegy. I have. And I haven't read the book. It's on my list. I'm eager to read it. I just finished it. He used the term Mountain Dew Mouth in the book. Mm. And, And I don't see that as an Eastern Kentucky term. I see that as a term coined by media. But it's all interesting to see such a picture painted of yourself and nothing come of it. Being covered by national media for so long and still it seems like there's no result. Like there's just this looking at us without any kind of action. I'm wondering, you mentioned some of the things. What things did you find to be different than you expected here in eastern Kentucky when you visited? Well, I think the things that I found were just sort of the entrepreneurial spirit. and Not that these were different than I expected, because frankly, I didn't really expect anything. I didn't know what to expect. Whenever I go to a place, I try to really keep an open mind. So I'll tell you what struck me about the place. A few things. One, just as we were talking about, this sort of intense pride that people have, the intense kind of love of the place. So many people said that people asked them, well, why don't you go somewhere else to find work? Well, they don't want to go somewhere else to find work because this is home. So that was one thing that struck me. And the other thing was just, like I said before, the incredible 
culture. When I was there, Kirby Smith, who's a filmmaker at Apple Shop, took me to visit with a friend of his who's a banjo player. And this man, I'm sorry that I'm blanking on his name, played the most wonderful music for me. And he was such a gem. And listening to him play, I almost felt guilty that I was there alone hearing this beautiful music. I just felt like it was a luxury. It was such a rare treat that I wished I had a video camera, that I was a television person so I could share it with the world. So I think those are the images that I'm left with, just the incredible beauty of the place and the culture of the people. And one of the most interesting conversations I had was with a guy named Flooney Hutchinson, who is not from Appalachia. He's actually from Jamaica. He's an economist who was brought in by Apple Shop to think about how to reimagine the structure of Apple Shop. And he talked to me about a strategy called asset mapping. He said that he wanted to come in and look at the region and do what he calls asset mapping, which is basically looking at its strengths as opposed to deficit mapping, which comes in and looks at problems, weaknesses. And he found a lot of strengths. He found that the resiliency of the people and their commitment and dedication to hard work through hard times was an incredible strength. So I'm also left with that memory as well. You saw a lot of things. You did a lot of things while you were here. Of all the things that you saw, how did you decide what to include in your feature? I set out in the beginning to want to write a story that would have three basic vignettes of things that I saw going on in the region that were offering promise economically. And so one, I was thinking about farming because it seems to me like there's a craft agriculture economy growing up with new restaurants that are using locally grown foods. There's a lot more farming going on now. I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about tech because I saw little tech initiatives bubbling up and also housing. And I especially wanted to write about Benham, which was one of the vignettes in my story because I was just fascinated by the whole idea of a captive coal mining camp and you know what had become of it long after the coal company pulled out. And for those of your listeners who don't know, Benham was a, a captive coal mining town that was founded around the early 1900s by a subsidiary of International Harvester. And it was a wholly owned coal company town. And now it's really mostly a museum. The old company store is a museum and the old schoolhouse is an inn. So I wanted to include that also because that's a town that's been wrestling with the coal bust for a very long time. So I just tried to pick groups and endeavors that were representative. And frankly, a lot of people that I talked to got left out. I interviewed other farmers beyond those who I featured and other entrepreneurs beyond those. But I felt that talking to all of them really helped me understand the full picture of what was happening. I want to mention that. That's actually my next question. In, in reading Beyond Coal, Imagining Appalachia's Future, which is the title of your piece, I noticed that aside from a few women who provided information and a context for what you were writing, that women were very much underrepresented. I think there was maybe 12 men mentioned as to three, two or three women. And I was wondering why that is. Wow. You know, I, I literally had not thought of that myself. Well, I think you're, I would say you got me there. Um, there was certainly no consciousness in it. 
I think maybe it's just perhaps representative of what I found. Truthfully, this is the first time I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about that. I certainly mentioned Ada Smith of Apple Shop and another Smith who is unrelated to Ada, Laura Smith, who works for the Mary Reynolds Babcock Foundation. I know that there are a lot of women-owned businesses and female entrepreneurs in the region. So there really wasn't a consciousness of it. I will say this. I talked in my research to two women who really had an impact on me. One was a woman named Sarah Day Evans. and She runs a group called Accelerating Appalachia. And it's a group that helps to try to spur business innovation. And for her own reasons, she didn't want to be included in my article. Her group covers a broader swath of Appalachia than just coal country. And so I actually did set out to feature her in it, but she decided you know, that she didn't want to be included. And that was you know, totally fine. So I wound up finding other farmers, and they happened to be male. The other woman who I talked to who I thought was really interesting was Shauna Scott, and she is a scholar at the University of Kentucky, and she has an institute there, and I can't exactly remember the name of it, but she's a scholar of Appalachia, and she was very instrumental in providing just a lot of information and helping me understand the region, but for one reason or another, she didn't get quoted. It's interesting because when I think about the impact that the economic transition has had on women. Traditionally, though, in the 70s, some women started working as coal miners, and there have definitely been women employed in various positions in the coal industry, but traditionally it's been mostly a male profession. And the other two big employers in the region, which is healthcare and education, have been primarily a female occupation until, again, in more recent times here. And I know that as our folks started losing the coal jobs, a lot of burden came upon the women of the household to not only play their traditional role in the home, but to then become the breadwinner and be the major provider for the family. So those roles really switched up there in a very short period of time for us. So I see a lot of what's happening with the economic transition as being put toward women. That's interesting. I wish somebody had mentioned that to me because I might have made a point of it in my story. Um, Someone did say that there were a lot of women-owned businesses, but it wasn't framed to me quite the way you just framed it about how when jobs were lost by men, the burden shifted to women. Nope, no one actually made that point to me, so I think that's really interesting. I'm thinking maybe another reason why it wasn't very apparent is a lot of the women-owned businesses are more like a personal-type business than one that's going to provide a lot of jobs, like BitSource or Mountain Tech Media, or a significant number of jobs. That could be, and interestingly, at BitSource, The the workforce was overwhelmingly male. I do remember uh, running into one woman there while I was there. There may be more than one, but during my visit there, there was just one female coder. But the workforce was overwhelmingly male, and perhaps that speaks to just what you said, that the job losses hit 
predominantly men, so they were looking to hire unemployed coal workers and their applicants, perhaps predominantly men. Right. I think a lot of the companies that are starting or the projects that are starting that are getting a lot of attention are geared toward employing former miners. I know that in Benham, actually, a while back, women actually ran the town. (laughs) It's not true currently, but some years ago, I guess a bunch of women got up in arms over the way the city was being run, and they all ran for office, and they threw out all the men, and uh, they had a female mayor for a while. I actually met with her while I was there. She's long since retired from politics. Her name is Wanda. I think her name was Wanda Humphrey. That really did fascinate me, too, how women kind of took over that old coal town. That story was written, I think, some years ago, maybe 15 or more years ago, by Parade Magazine. We have really a strong tradition in that. I would argue that most of Appalachia is an underground matriarchal culture. Maybe most of America is an underground <laughs> matriarchal culture. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> my, my two college-age daughters are always talking to me about the patriarchy. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Per- <laughs> they're very feminist. You know, mm-hmm. stop perpetuating the patriarchy. <laughs> they have a good working mom, though, so I don't think I'm perpetuating the patriarchy. There is an oral history that I ran across not too long ago where the woman said, we have this duality where for our very survival, we have to do things that in the rest of America seem to be outside of the woman's traditional role. And this was like in the mid-70s, early 70s, that this history was taken. And she said, but on the other hand, we feel like we have a definite place. So it's almost like we were self-correcting and putting ourselves back into this place and then coming out of it when we needed to in order to survive. So well, was... well, maybe, you know, in a more diversified economy, you may see more women rising up into more positions of leadership or positions of employing other people, in, including men. In other words, the region is really in transition now, and it's kind of just in the beginning of this very lurching transition, but I would be interested in what's happening there 20 years from now. I want to know, what was your overall impression of the efforts that you saw to rebuild the economy here? Do you think that it's a successful start, or do you still have some apprehension? What do you think it will be like 20 years from now? Will you be reporting on a success? I don't know. I do think that it's daunting, and there's really a long way to go. And I think it's not really possible to talk about the transition without talking about kind of the fights over what people in the progressive advocacy movement call a just transition. Anybody who's living there now probably knows that there's this big fight over whether or not to put a prison in Letcher County. And some of your political leaders, Representative Hal Rogers, a Republican, has argued that you know this prison would bring 300 or so jobs. But other people feel that this is the wrong path toward economic development. And groups like Kentuckians for the Commonwealth are talking about a just transition. And by that, they mean economic development that won't hurt people's health or hurt the land. I think really that's kind of what the big fight is over now is how do you bring a lot of jobs to a region in a way that is, quote unquote, just, that won't hurt people's health or hurt the land or change things in a way that people in the region are not happy with. So in answer to your question about what will I see and will it succeed, 
brutally honest, I have to say, I don't know the answer to that. I know the Obama administration has designated the region a promise zone. They are trying to bring in broadband, which is very important. Connectivity will enable people to have jobs where they can stay at home and work remotely. That would obviously help people's economic health. But a lot of things have to happen beyond just the small entrepreneurial effort that I wrote about in order to, I think, really make the region vibrant. I'm not an economist. I'm just a newspaper reporter. So maybe I'm out of my league answering these questions, but that's kind of how I see it. As someone who lives here and is raising three daughters here, it's a question to me almost every day as whether it's the right thing to stay and continue working towards this when I think about their future and what opportunities they will have. Because yeah, Trini, I'm curious about that. Like, I'm wondering, what will you tell your daughters when it's time for them to maybe go to college or make their own lives? Will you encourage them to stay or will you encourage them to go somewhere else? I don't think I'll encourage them either way. For me, it's more about what they see as their calling Mm -hmm. and how they can best go about providing the opportunities for them to be happy in their work. So if that means leaving, it means leaving. Yeah, I think that's a good mom answer. That's what I've always told my girls. I just want you to be happy. I want to support you in whatever you're doing and have you be a productive, happy, healthy member of society. But it's hard not to want them to be at home. It is. It's hard. And like you said, we do have a really strong pride in the region. And of course, I want to see it succeed and rebuild. And I wonder if we would even be asking these questions about a just transition if we weren't in this position. Because I think of when I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, I think it's the 16th largest city in the United States. And there were areas of the community that were definitely dealing with things like air pollution Mm -hmm. causing health problems and higher levels of cancer in those neighborhoods because of industry being there. And very few people were questioning whether or not that industry should stay. So I think about urban communities and other rural communities that are seeing the effects of industrial pollution. Well, but think about Flint, Michigan, and all all these places that are having a water crisis. Certainly they're talking about them there. And You know, I spend actually a lot of my time in cities. I, as the Mid-Atlantic Bureau Chief for the Times, I have a very large region to cover. My region extends from Pennsylvania. It includes Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, the District of Columbia, the city, not the, the government. We have plenty of people to cover the White House and Congress, and I, in fact, used to do that. Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio. So that's a big region, and it includes a lot of cities. I've spent a lot of time reporting on cities. I'm the person who covered the Freddie Gray trials in Baltimore, the the uprising there and its aftermath. And I've also written a lot about Philadelphia and Cleveland recently in advance of the political convention. I'm really struck by how in their own ways, cities are also experiencing some of the wrenching economic dislocation that eastern Kentucky is. In a lot of these cities, you see a beautiful, sparkling downtown and revitalizing neighborhoods, gentrifying neighborhoods, but you also see incredible poverty, just unbelievable poverty. And if you think that housing conditions are bad in some of the places where you live, you should go to Baltimore, to West Baltimore, where Freddie Gray grew up. You know, you'd be shocked. Freddie Gray had lead poisoning as a child. 
the housing there is so deteriorated, it, it looks like a, a war zone in some places. And it's heartbreaking. And those people have pride in their communities, too. Many of them want to stay because they have churches and community centers that they're active in. It's their home, too. I guess I'm just trying to say that Eastern Kentucky is certainly not alone in experiencing hardship and difficulty. That's for sure. And I think sometimes the media attention, the really focused media attention, and it's off and on, it ebbs and flows, but that attention on us makes us feel somehow very unique. And we don't see a lot of what you just mentioned on the media or being talked about until there's like a tragedy, like the water situation in Flint. Well, I can tell you the people in Baltimore, it's really interesting to hear you talk about how you feel because I did some very deep reporting in Baltimore um, six months after the unrest there, and the story was titled, uh, I think, A Fragile Baltimore Struggles to Heal After Deadly Police Encounter. And what I found over and over again there was the same feeling that The national media had come to Baltimore and they had shown the city in flames and people looting and rioting, and nobody saw the great things about Baltimore. And they really felt like they had been painted with this broad brush of, you know, Baltimore is just a pit and it's a terrible place and there's nothing good about it. When in fact, Baltimore is one of the cities that I love the most. There's so much vibrancy there. There's great restaurants in Baltimore. There's art, there's new theaters being developed, and there's incredible African-American history in Baltimore. The rich Appalachian history and heritage that you have, there's equally rich black history in Baltimore and black culture, food and art and music. It's just interesting to me that they, they have that same feeling, like the national press comes in and they only focus on what is kind of the most obvious. And In my reporting there and in eastern Kentucky, I guess I tried to focus on things that were maybe less obvious, that didn't sort of hit the national media in the face. Those are the ordinary moments that people don't always see. Do you think that national media outlets pressure their journalists to find the stories that are most sensational or will create the biggest buzz and therefore... Like you said, it's the easier thing to focus on. You know, I don't think so. I mean, I think when you've got a riot and people are burning buildings down, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not, it's not like the national media is going in and finding that story. That's something that's happening. But that's when the national media takes notice. Just like when there's a mine disaster in West Virginia and two dozen people, miners are killed, but suddenly the national media swoops into West Virginia to take notice because something really big has happened that can't be ignored, that makes news. And then what happens is those news events shape people's perceptions. And especially in the era of television, that footage gets played over and over and over again. So I know in Baltimore, after the officers were acquitted in the Freddie Gray trials, it was quite peaceful in Baltimore. But you would see on national television outlets, them running footage of the riots from a year earlier. And people in Baltimore were outraged. And people took to Twitter and said, you know, this is crazy. And why are they showing this? And I do think that actually national media, and I'm really speaking mostly of television, because that's where people get their news. And that's where you see a lot of this visual imagery. Mm -hmm. I think they're becoming more sensitive to that. 
to the perception that, you know, you've really got to be truthful. Don't show old footage. If you're writing about Baltimore and it's peaceful, don't be showing pictures on TV of the city in flames from a year earlier. not just about notebooks and pencil boxes anymore. The opioid epidemic means back-to-school supplies now include emergency overdose treatments and drug prevention plans. As Aaron Payne reports, many schools in the Ohio Valley region are using random drug testing despite questions about whether the tests really work to deter drug use. Belpre High School takes the field against Trimble in the second week of high school football in Ohio. Logan Racy and Eric Ross help lead the team during their senior seasons. Eric says it's important for them to be good role models on and off the field. That includes remaining opioid free. You get really close. You're all friends. It's a brotherhood. You don't want to let the other person down. You don't want to be the guy that got busted for drugs. Logan agrees. He says, however, their love of the game is a good deterrent. If you have a passion for the sport and a love for it, you're going to stay away from that stuff. The two are not alone. A recent study from the Journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics found students who participate in extracurricular activities were less likely than their peers to have long-term opioid use disorders. Logan and Eric, however, understand student-athletes are not immune to the dangers of opioid abuse. They lost a teammate two years ago to a heroin overdose. The death was hard on the teens and equally hard on the educators working in the Belpre City school system. To lose a kid to anything is tragic. To lose a, lose a kid to something as preventable as an overdose, an accidental overdose, is just devastating. That's Superintendent Tony Dunn. Dunn says a committee of adults joined student-athletes like Logan Racy in response to the tragedy and established a random drug testing policy. Middle and high schoolers involved in extracurricular activities or who drive to school are tested. Dunn says they needed a way to reach the kids suffering from addiction, and by providing treatment and counseling for those students rather than expelling them, they hope to prevent the next tragedy. The ultimate success will be none of our kids will die from accidental overdose. But others question whether testing is effective. Dr. Stephen Matson is the okay, chief of adolescent medicine at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, where he also runs an addiction clinic. People have looked at that random drug testing and just doesn't work. Studies show mixed results, and after working one-on-one -on -one with children suffering from opioid addiction, Matson says he believes parenting a child is more effective than drug testing one. You might make them your kids crabby for a little while, but that's your job as a parent to not always be their best friend. Researchers from the Journal of Psychiatric Studies last year found children who receive direct involvement from their parents are less likely to abuse opioids. Matson says the medical community also plays a role in limiting access to the opioids children so might I'm abuse. Medication for, um, His colleague, Sharon Rona, director of pain management, works to develop best practices when it comes to treating their young patients with opioids. If we're prescribing opioids, certainly you need to outweigh the benefits and risk, and you need to see if it's appropriate for that type of pain. Rona says they look closely at the risk factors for addiction, and physicians are more often turning to alternative methods of pain management. Rona says she's teaching children how to manage their pain with the help of gamification. 
there's like a game in there and it shows them they can move through the game if they're relaxing and using those techniques that we've taught them. Statistics show these efforts might be paying off. Data from the group monitoring the future indicates opioid abuse has dropped over the past few years among 8th, 10th, and 12th graders. And most experts believe if enough resources go toward proven prevention and treatment programs, healthy children will grow into adults with a better shot at ending the epidemic. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Aaron Payne in Columbus, Ohio. The Ohio Valley Resource is made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and WMMT. I'm Kelly Haywood, and you are listening to Mountain Talk Monday on WMMT. Real stories, real news, real people radio. Brought to you straight from the heart of central Appalachia. Thanks for listening. I wonder if, though, the positive stories about eastern Kentucky, it really shows bits of hope in amongst all of this other types of reporting. I wonder if those stories will ever get as much attention. Well, my story was the fifth most emailed story on the New York Times most emailed list. So I think that it did get attention. I mean, that's competing with a lot of stories to make it onto that top 10 email list. I didn't set out to write a positive or a negative story, and I don't ever set out to write a positive or a negative story. And my story included facts like 13,000 coal jobs have disappeared in Kentucky. It talked about, at BitSource, the gentleman that I featured was one of a 1,000 laid-off miners who applied for 10 jobs. So maybe it's a matter of emphasis. It was a story that looked at these nascent efforts, but it wasn't intended as positive or negative. It was intended as truthful, just as those other stories that deal in a lot of hard-hitting statistics are also truthful. I agree. I know um, people perceived it as positive. Yes. <laughs> I think of it more as... I was trying to write about things unseen or unknown to outsiders. A lot of people have come in and written about poverty and despair and joblessness. I didn't really need to write that story because that story's already been written. I wanted to write a different story that hadn't been written. Maybe that is the reason that myself and others I've heard talk about the story are calling it a positive story Mm -hmm. because anything that doesn't focus on the desperation feels positive. Mm -hmm. I feel like we can't really talk about this story without talking about my other favorite story from Whitesburg, which is the story about the Moonshine Distillery, which was a wonderful story that I stumbled on while I was reporting there. And I had gone in to talk to Colin Fultz, who owns Kentucky Mist Moonshine, and I wanted to talk to him about the coal economy, and we sat and we chatted, and he had been in a business before he opened this distillery that was related to the coal industry, and we talked for a while about that, and I said, thank you very much, and he said, well, you didn't ask me about the lawsuit. I said, well, what lawsuit? (laughs) And he proceeded to tell me about how he had tried to trademark the name Kentucky Mist Moonshine for selling T-shirts and had discovered that the University of Kentucky had trademarked the name Kentucky for clothing. And this 
caused a big uproar, and Colin wound up suing, and I wrote a story about it. And the reason I loved that story so much was that it also showed kind of a side of eastern Kentucky that I think a lot of people don't realize. And it, it blended the history of the culture of the place with something that's happening right now. Colin Fultz's grandfather was a bootlegger, and yet here he was making gourmet moonshine that sells for $25 a jar and serving it in a beautiful, renovated, exposed brick tasting bar, and, and it's bringing tourists into town. I really love that as an example of how things are changing and maybe the way old is blending with new. That reminds me, I recently, for Harriet Simpson Arno's birthday, she is the writer of The Dollmaker, which is a pretty famous book about Appalachia. Jane Fonda was in the mm-hmm. movie adaptation. Yep. She, in an interview, said that someone had asked her when she had written about some moonshiners, why didn't she want to write about good people? And she said that she didn't feel that they were bad people, that they were just trying to make a living like everyone else. And in their own way, their family story has evolved. Mm -hmm. It's the same goal. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. My husband's grandfather was sheriff of Muhlenberg County, Kentucky, mm-hmm. in western Kentucky. And the, there's family lore about him going out with some of his deputies to bust up a still. And what they would do is they would drive out to where the still was, and then they'd open the car doors, and they'd make a lot of noise, and they'd say, well, we got to go in there and find this still. Yep, we better go after those moonshiners. You know, obviously letting whoever was back there in the woods know that the deputies were coming. And then sure enough, you know, the deputies would show up and there'd be nobody left there to, to arrest. I always thought that was a great story of how kind of a live and let live story, if you will. We're almost coming up on time. I wanted to talk just a second more about the attention that Appalachia is getting around this presidential election, Mm -hmm. which I almost hate to bring it up because a lot of the reporting has been kind of embarrassing. But what do you make of the interest that many seem to have in working class Americans or particularly Appalachians and their support for Donald Trump? Well, I think that what drove Donald Trump to get the Republican nomination was a feeling by many people in America, not just in eastern Kentucky, but across the country, a feeling of being left behind by Washington, of economic despair and anxiety about the future of the country. And one place that we're seeing that is, of course, in Appalachia, in coal country, where so many people are out of work. So Donald Trump is trying to tap into that by promising in just about every single speech he gives to bring mining jobs back. Frankly, most economists know that that is not possible, at least not to the extent that he seems to be promising. It's really not possible to restore mining jobs to the level that they were, say, 10 years ago. But he's tapped into something there. And frankly, in the Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders also tapped into it because Hillary Clinton, as you well know, tripped up in an appearance in West Virginia when she said something to the effect of, you know, we're going to put a lot of coal mines out of business. She was talking about 
clean energy and her own proposals for clean energy jobs. But nonetheless, that was a quote that stuck with her. It hurt her terribly in the region, and it is going to hurt her in Kentucky. I, I was talking just last week to a prominent Democrat in Kentucky, and I said, so do you think you'll be able to pull Kentucky for Hillary Clinton? And this mm -hmm. man said, no, nope, she's not going to win here. So I think maybe Appalachia is kind of a very, very bold and vibrant example of what is happening in the rest of the country around these feelings of economic insecurity, the feelings that drove Donald Trump to the top of a very, very crowded pack. And those feelings are, frankly, what this presidential race is being fought over, and they're playing out right there in your region. So I think that's why there's so much focus right now in the presidential coverage on coal country, because it's just such a vivid example of the broader themes that have emerged in this race. One of the things that I fear most is that one of the quotes in Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance that I really liked, and this isn't word for word, this is more of a paraphrase, but he said that we've got to stop blaming Obama or Bush for the situation that we're in and instead start creating more opportunities for the young people and start working towards change ourselves. And what I fear most is that we'll look towards either Trump or Clinton to bring about the change. And no matter who's elected, I believe we'll be greatly disappointed if we continue to put our hopes in politics. You know, I'd like to speak a little to that quote that you just read, because really what he said was a big theme of my story, which is that Republicans and Democrats have been fighting over the so-called war on coal for eight years. But you know what? In eastern Kentucky, on the ground, there are people who are both pro-coal and anti-coal, so to speak, who are coming together to wrestle with a question that is very essential to the survival of the region, and that is, what comes after coal? And you're seeing people across the political spectrum working together, setting aside those political differences, not changing their minds about, say, Trump or Clinton or about Obama's regulations, but putting aside that dispute to work together to try to make a better place. And at the very end of my story, I quoted... Rusty Justice, who's the co-founder of BitSource, tech company in Pikeville, and nobody's more pro-coal than Rusty Justice. And he says, cats and dogs are sleeping together in the mountains now. And I really loved that because it showed to me that people are trying to work together despite this incredible polarization, despite the presidential race, the fact that Trump and Clinton are carrying this war on coal rhetoric onto the presidential campaign trail. People in the region know that those coal jobs are not coming back the way they once were, and that if anything is going to happen, they're going to have to work together. That's true. We do know, and I think getting around this rhetoric and the way that rhetoric can stir us up will really be key. And I truly believe that it doesn't matter where you fall on the political spectrum. If you're an Appalachian, if you're an Eastern Kentuckian, you have more in common with your neighbor, regardless of your politics, than you think. 
and we can come together because we want the same thing for our community. To end our discussion here, I would like to ask, do you think as a people, you know, we've been portrayed often as ignorant and uneducated and silly, and those are just the lighter terms used for the people here. But I want to end with your overall impression. What are Eastern Kentuckians, Appalachians capable of? Anything. I mean, that's the no-brainer to me. I mean, look at what's going on there now. Who do you think is running all of this entrepreneurship? It's Eastern Kentuckians. It's Appalachians. Who's learning to code at BitSource? It's Eastern Kentuckians. One other thing that really struck me was people talked to me about how in a place that has been so dependent on the coal economy for so long, people themselves, the people who live in eastern Kentucky, didn't believe they could be capable of doing something else. That when you're so beaten down for so long by cycles of boom and bust and now by terrible, terrible job losses and unemployment, that in a way people lost their confidence a little bit. But they shouldn't. And one of the things that the people at BitSource told me was that they had what they called reimagination training for their workers. That the biggest hurdle to training miners in how to code was not teaching them how to code or all of the technical stuff. It was simply getting to them to imagine that they could do the work. And they literally gave them pep talks and they said, Stop thinking of yourself as unemployed coal workers. You're technology workers now. So my answer to you is people in eastern Kentucky are capable of the same things that people in New York and San Francisco and Baltimore and Idaho or anywhere else are capable of. And, you know, there's smart people and thoughtful people and ignorant people and silly people all over the country. <laughs> and, and there's smart, thoughtful, ignorant, silly people in New York, just like there are smart, thoughtful, and ignorant and silly people in eastern Kentucky. But nobody has the, a corner on, on that market. I'm glad to hear you say it in that way. I know a lot of us have dealt with that stereotype for a long time. And as someone who interviews people for the radio on a regular basis, one of the biggest obstacles that I have to overcome is convincing the people that I want to interview that they won't sound stupid. You know, I get that a lot in my political coverage, and I actually get it all over the country. So often I approach people and they'll say to me, I don't know anything about politics, or I'm not, I'm not a good person to talk to about that. And I'll say, well, but you know what you think. You know what's important to you. And really, that's what matters. That's what drives people. So also, maybe it has to do with being married to a Kentuckian for all this time. So I guess I'm a little bit familiar with some of that feeling of being stereotyped or looked down upon. So you might notice that Nowhere in my story does the word hillbilly appear, even in quotes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. I don't use the word to describe myself or my people unless I'm having to refer to it in the context of someone else's use of the word. Right. Yeah, so it does bother me. And I know my great-grandmother, she was an English teacher, and she would tell me all the time, she would teach me to code switch and not speak with my accent as best that I could and not use words like ain't 
because she said that people would think I was stupid. So it's a deeply ingrained idea that I think we really have to battle to overcome. Yeah, well, look, I think politicians have battled that, too. I think Jimmy Carter, when he was elected, had a Southern accent, and that was very new for Americans, and Americans had to get used to it, and they used to hear talk a lot of pride among Southerners, that someone who spoke with a Southern accent was occupying the White House, and it just gave them comfort that they had that kind of model in Washington. So I think that feeling isn't new. And I think the takeaway is no matter how you speak or the words that you use, it doesn't reflect the contents of your mind necessarily in the way that it's been described in media or literature. Absolutely. Well, we're at the end of the hour, and I want to thank you again, Cheryl Stolberg, for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you. I hope to get back there soon. Yeah, I hope you do, too. We always appreciate visitors, especially now. Okay. (laughs) So thank you, and have a good evening. Okay, thanks, Kelly. Uh Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our program. For more information, visit www.wmmt.org. This has been Mountain Talk, and I'm Kelly Haywood for WMMT. Real stories, real news, real people radio. I hope you have an excellent evening.